Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for that. That was excellent, outstanding, and a good reminder. You know what part of that song I love? I love it when they bellow. And every once in a while you ought to break off from singing and just go to bellowing. When they bellow the words, Christ is the Lord. Christ is the Lord. Those words, ladies and gentlemen, that is the message. And you, they have no clue how well they set up the sermon this morning. Take your Bible with me, please. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 in your Bible. In our scripture reading a moment ago, we read concerning the temptation of Christ. We did that as a background to what I have to say in the message this morning, and I am continuing somewhat my thought from last week. Last week, I talked about the fact that battle lines are drawn. Pastor Monty, what is Christmas all about? Is it about little Keebler elves and fudge rounds? No, 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 that'll give you heartburn. What is Christmas all about? Is it about Christmas trees and tinsel? All that's fine. All that, I have no problem with that. Have, have it all you want. I do have a problem with, um, with glitter. With glitter. Okay, do not bring glitter into the church. It will be here until next August. It doesn't vacuum. It can't be cleaned. I, I don't know. Just don't bring glitter. I have, glitter is the Ebola of Christmas decorations. It really is. It's horrible. You get a, a card, and you open up that card, and glitter just pours out on you, you know, and it gets all over your face, and it gets on. And it, I don't look good in glitter, so I'm just not, not a good thing, not a good look. That's not what Christmas is about. Do you know what Christmas is about? It is a declared battle against Satan. Genesis 3.15, we talked about that last week, that it is a battle between the seed of woman, Christ, and the seed of Satan, and I think ultimately Antichrist, but it is a battle, the epic battle, the cosmic battle between good and evil, between that which is of God and that which is of Satan. And part of the problem with the contemporary church is our silence concerning the things that the Bible says about the dark side. In fact, the average church pretends there is no enemy at all, the average church never considers the fact that Satan would, if he cannot take our souls to hell, he would destroy our lives in such a way as to make us completely ineffective for the sake of the kingdom of God. We saw last week that Satan did everything he could to prevent the birth of Christ and the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 from being fulfilled. We saw that <coughs> Christ overcame every satanic attack, that he was born just as predicted in Bethlehem. And then we saw Satan's strategy shifted. He could no longer prevent Jesus' birth, as he had tried to throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Gave a brief summary of that last week. He could no longer prevent Jesus' birth, but he would seek to end Jesus' life. As an example of the change in strategy, we have the slaughter of the innocents by the wicked King Herod. Herod, having heard from the wise men that he that is born king of the Jews would appear, was born in, in Israel, somewhere in Israel. Herod inquired, where would that be? And they responded, it would be Bethlehem. Some of his scholars responded, Bethlehem. And then Herod enacted the death of those boys two years old and, and under in order to prevent the possibility of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, from ascending the throne. Pastor Monty, that was just Herod. That was a satanic attack. And yet we know that it did not work. But you say, Pastor Monty, you've described Christmas as a battle, and that's an accurate description. 
What is Jesus' battle plan? Have you ever wondered? We outlined what the devil was doing. If the devil is so active to prevent Christ or then to eliminate Christ after his birth, the question should be asked, what is Jesus' battle plan? How will Jesus engage the enemy? I want you to listen carefully. Jesus has chosen what we may consider to be a a strange method of engaging the enemy. We're going to prove this in a moment. He he chose a method that is different from our thinking because in our thinking, the engagement of an enemy involves a violent assault that is not part of the first advent. Now we'll get to next week, next week. But the first advent, the first coming of Christ, which was predicted in Genesis 3.15, it is not a violent assault upon the earth. He did not establish his kingdom by the use of violence. He did not force his rule and reign upon men. He didn't do that. Pastor Monty, how how is Jesus going to come back at the devil? Listen really carefully. Jesus engages the enemy by the proclamation of truth. Jesus engages the enemy by the proclamation of truth. In other words, from the moment of his first advent until his return at the rapture and the gathering together of the saints... Until that time, the chief battle plan, the thing that we are called upon to do in his name, is to engage the enemy by proclaiming the truth. It is the truth that defeats Satan. Pastor Monty, what what truth defeats Satan? Really, it's two-part. I'll try to get to both of them this morning. If I don't, we'll do it another time, but it's two-part. Number one, it is this, the truth about who Jesus Christ is. I'm not going to get too far ahead in the message, but you may have seen that when we read the story of the temptation. Remember what Satan said to Jesus? He said, if thou be the Son of God, do this. If thou be the Son of God, do that. There was a question as to the identity of Christ. And the message of Christ centers on who he is, his person, that he is the Son of God. Now you say, well, Pastor Monty, that's obvious. Oh, it is to us in church. And we are believers. But outside the walls of this building, in a culture that has become heathen and pagan and secular, people resist the idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Because Jesus as the Son of God, if you think it through and you don't have to think far, Jesus as the Son of God, means he has absolute authority over my life. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the resistance begins. In our culture, (coughs) people have kind of given up on the the Christmas war. At least I haven't seen a lot of that lately, you know. Say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you should always say Merry Christmas because you don't want to be a weirdo, okay? Just say Merry Christmas, okay? When someone says happy holidays to to me, I doubt their eternal destiny. And so, but but you, you... just say Merry Christmas. But, but that's not the battle. Okay, the battle is who is Jesus. And the world will agree that a baby was born in Bethlehem. But what they will not agree to is his identity. Because if you say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you immediately place yourself in the position of having to submit yourself to him. And that is something the world does not want. And that is something that Satan himself is trying to prevent. 
I want to do something a little different this morning. You're at Luke chapter 4, but I'm going to ask you to turn back to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, of course, is the famous story of the birth and boyhood of Jesus. We said a moment ago that Christ engages the enemy by the proclamation of truth. What truth that he is the Son of God? I want you to see in a quick survey that the whole theme of the first four chapters of Luke is that he is the Son of God. When you say he is the Son of God, that means he has authority. That means he ultimately has dominion in his humanity via Mary and in his divinity via the Holy Ghost. That means that he is, in the words of Scripture, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that places him in direct and incontrovertible opposition to Satan. So some examples. He is the Son of God. Luke chapter 2, and you can look at it as I'm talking about it. I'll not read. But if you look at verse number 11, we find the angels declaring to the shepherds a particular message. This is right in the story of the birth of Christ, the nativity. In Luke 2.11, the angels say to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, note the next words, which is Christ the Lord. Now listen carefully. Whenever the New Testament uses the expression, the Lord Jesus Christ, and connects the word Lord and Christ, it is saying Messiah and God. The word Lord is not just a word, well, Pastor Monty, the word Lord just simply means master, not in this context. And by the way, not in any Old Testament context. When the word Lord is used in our New Testament, every Jew understood that this was a declaration not only of him being the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, that is the word we use, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, not just that, but that he is in some way the Lord, that he is in some way God. And the angel said unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He is already identified as the Son of God. If you go further down in the chapter, you find that Joseph and Mary <coughs> bring Jesus to be circumcised into the temple. There's an aged man by the name of Simeon. And the Lord made Simeon an interesting promise. The Lord said, Simeon, you're, you're not going to die until you see the Lord's Christ. And the Bible says this in chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. When Simeon looked upon Jesus, the baby Jesus, he said, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Well, what is that statement? He had identified Jesus. How did he identify him? As a light to the Gentiles, that will be very key later on. As a light to the Gentiles, but then he said this, the glory of thy people Israel. What does that have reference to? Oh, Pastor Mine, it just means that Simeon thought Jesus one day would grow up to be a big deal. <laughs> no, no, it's much more than that. See, the phrase like glory of thy people Israel, that's speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. That's speaking about the light that is so bright it cannot be approached. When you use the word glory in the context of an Old Testament saint, that meant the very presence of God, God who cannot be seen, but God who dwells in light that is unapproachable. And when these words were spoken by Simeon, he was making a reference to Jesus' deity. He is God. But then you have the declaration 
of the boy Jesus himself. Fast forward from his circumcision at the eighth day to him being 12 years old. Something interesting happened. I love this story. Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus with the rest of their extended family up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they, they were having a good time with family and friends. They were doing the Passover thing. And big crowds of people, thousands, thousands, and thousands of people in Jerusalem. And they're doing the Passover thing. And they had a large extended family, apparently. And so uh, when they left the city after the Passover feast, they all decided to gather together. And, and Jesus, uh, they were going to travel back home, wherever that was. They were going to travel. And uh, they, they just kind of assume, mom and dad kind of assume that, well, Jesus is just hanging out with his cousins, or Jesus is just out there with the family. He's with the rest of the family. Now, isn't that interesting? They, they lost Jesus. I, I'm just being honest. They lost Jesus. They, they lost him. They, they, well, he's, up with other, he's with his aunts and uncles. You know, he's with these people. They lost him. By the way, they weren't helicopter parents, Mary and Joseph. <laughs> no, I'm just saying... I'm just saying, I can't believe Mary and Joseph were so careless. No, no, they were just kind of letting Jesus grow up afterwards. After all, he was 12, the age when a Jewish boy becomes a man. But they're kind of missing him. And they searched for him. He was gone three days. (laughs) That's a long time. And when they finally found Jesus, where was he? Scripture reveals that he was in the temple. And what was he doing? He was talking to the learned doctors of the Old Testament law, the intellectuals, the spiritual elite. He was talking to them, and he was asking them questions and drilling down into the Scripture. Can you imagine this? Mom and Dad finally figure it out. They go to the temple. Where's that that kid that's talking? Oh, he's over here. He's been talking for three days. (laughs) Where is he? They go, and there he is. And they said, son, didn't you realize, you know, me and your dad, we've been looking for you. Our hearts are broken. We thought you were gone. We thought you were abducted. We thought we thought the worst. And Jesus said these words in verse number 49. He said, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Ladies and gentlemen, he is the son of God. The point is that the message of the person of who Jesus is, he is the Son of God. But your Bible's open to Luke 2. You can look across the page or perhaps have to turn the page to Luke chapter 3. Not just his birth and boyhood, but the message that he is the Son of God was loud and clear at his baptism. Pastor Marty, why is this so important? Listen carefully. Because Jesus is not just another man. Why is this so important? Because Jesus is not optional. You hear me? If you are not on the side of Jesus Christ, then you, by default, are on the side of Satan. There is no middle ground. Christmas, in that sense, is a great dividing line because it tells us which side of the battle we're on. And part of that battle is to identify the Christ who is the Son of God. It's interesting because... If you would look at chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, verse number 15. The Bible says this, John the Baptist has come on the scene. He's preaching his kind of rough message to the people of repentance, declaring the kingdoms at hand. And John chapter 3, verse 15, as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, think of John the Baptist, whether he were the Christ or not. They're they're wondering, because of the preaching, because of the emphasis he has. 
John answered, he answered their question, the musing of their heart. He answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now look at verse number 14. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff will he burn with fire unquenchable. What is that? That's a reference, I believe, to Micah chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Micah chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 is a prophecy yet to be fulfilled about the defeat of the nations who will come against Israel in the last days. What is John the Baptist saying? This one who is mightier than I. You see, that passage in Micah refers to the person who does this, defeats the nations that come against Israel in the latter days. By the way, foolish would the nation be to come against Israel. Foolish would the nation be. I take, you say, Pastor Money, you're going to take sides? I took sides a long time ago on this Palestinian Hamas business. And by the way, by the way, dumb and dumber and dumbest. <laughs> MIT, Harvard, and UPenn. Okay, you have to go to school for a very long time to get that stupid. If you cannot condemn the atrocities of, of Hamas outright, oh, by the way, by the way, the friends of the Biden, I'm not preaching on this, but I might as well just say it. The friends, consider this not preaching for those of you who don't like this stuff. The friends of the Biden administration care, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, remember that crowd? Years ago, at our church, Evidence is Online, I exposed that group along with the Islamic Society of North America in Plainfield as terrorist organizations, period. Our government cozied right up to them and that the head of care declares that he was happy about the events of October 7th in the slaughter of the Jews in that horrific terrorist attack. And now the government took their name off the website. Can I ask you a question? How dumb can you be? If a backwater, stump-jumping, prophecy-peddling Baptist preacher can figure out who the bad guys are, you know what I'm saying? Shouldn't the White House be able to? I think this is probably an example of willful ignorance. But John the Baptist, in that, pardon me, in that passage, Micah, predicts that the Lord would defeat the nations. John the Baptist references that passage. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is the Lord. He is the Son of God and God the Son. But if you don't take that as evidence, drop down to verse 21. The Bible says, now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was open. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, upon Jesus. Now note this. And a voice from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. What is the point? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a good moral example. He's not a revolutionary, and by the way, certainly not a feminist, as has been identified by some of the odd theologians of our day. 
Jesus Christ is more. He is the Son of God and God the Son. And that is the truth by which he will fight the works of the devil. We'll get there in a moment. Now you're in Luke chapter 4. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. We read this a moment ago. In Luke chapter 4, at least twice in the passage of the temptation, Satan gave the challenge to Jesus, If thou be the Son of God... Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. That would make any man hungry. The Satan comes to him in the wilderness and says, If thou be the Son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. Let me ask you a question. Could Jesus do that, yes or no? Yes, he could do that. Did he indulge the devil for five seconds? No. What did he do? He answered Satan's temptation with Scripture. Now, I want every person to listen to what I'm about to say. Truth is the only defeat to temptation and falsehood. Truth, truth. Here's a Pastor Monty, how did it work for Adam and Eve? Well, I'm glad you brought Adam and Eve up. I won't go into it, but there are tremendous parallels between the temptation of Adam and Eve back in the garden and the temptation of Christ. You can study that out on your own. But Adam is the first Adam. Christ is the second Adam. What did Adam do? Adam and Eve, Eve in particular, listened to the voice of the serpent, and then she gave to her husband and he did eat. Well, what was the voice of the serpent? The voice of the serpent was, Doubt God's word. Yea, hath God said? That's the voice of the serpent. And so Adam and Eve were like, yeah, you know, God said this. And then Satan denied. He said, now look, if you eat of the fruit of the tree, you'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. And they believed a lie. And in believing that lie and rejecting the truth, the truth was they weren't supposed to eat of that tree, they weren't supposed to touch that tree. In believing that lie and rejecting that truth, they plunged all humanity into the darkness we're in today. Now, when Satan came with similar temptations to Christ, he simply responded with the words, it is written. He quoted scripture back to the devil. He said, though I am hungry, 40-day fast, folks, it's a long time without food. Though I am hungry, I'll quote scripture because my allegiance is to truth, not to my flesh. My allegiance is to truth, not to feelings. Jesus, if you'll worship me for just a moment, just bow down one time, I'll give you the kingdoms of the whole earth. Jesus countered with truth. He said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What was he doing? Jesus understood that his destiny was to be king of kings and lord of lords. That his destiny was to take dominion over all of the earth, but Jesus would not be tempted to take a shortcut by bowing the knee to Satan. Now, wouldn't that have been, honestly, kind of tempting? He knew about the cross. He knew about the suffering. He knew that the sins of the whole world would be placed upon his shoulders, and yet Jesus said no. He he took truth, and he took truth against natural human instinct. Are you following me in this? Jesus' strategy of engagement against Satan was to proclaim truth and to quote scripture. Jesus' strategy was to manifest, listen carefully, that he is the son of God, not by playing into Satan's paltry challenges, but by saying, Satan, I will overcome your temptation. 
Whereas the first man, Adam, sinned and fell, I am the second Adam, and I will not fall to your temptation. I will quote to you the word of God, and I will be 100% victorious. And in that, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus proved himself to be the Son of God. But then we come to Luke chapter 4. And I read a moment ago about the temptation. But the second part is something I want to drill down on for just a moment. Because Jesus does something interesting here. He returns to his boyhood synagogue in Nazareth. These are the folks he grew up with. These are the the kids that he played with. These are the families that they knew in in Nazareth. And look with with me, if you will, at what happens in verse 16, Luke 4 and 16. The Bible says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. Now, this would be allowable, men of a certain age, and oftentimes guests, some coming back to maybe their hometown, (coughs) would be invited to read a portion of Scripture. He said, Pastor Monty, could they pick anything they want? Yes, within reason. There were certain, uh, certain scriptures were relegated to certain days, but there was a broadness in the choice. But one thing I need to tell you about is this. They did not have an option concerning how many verses they read. They had to read a minimum of at least three verses if they were reading from the prophets. There was a minimal reading. And so Jesus, of course, is aware of this. He has been invited to stand up and to read. And so verse number 17, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found his place where it is written. Now, the quotation that is in your Bible comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verse number 1. Jesus finds that location in the scroll, and he begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse number 20. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. Why did he sit down? Because it was very custom, a custom for people teaching to be seated. The scripture would be read standing and then he would sit down to teach. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Pastor Monty, he had everybody's rapt attention. Yeah, do you want to know why? They knew he didn't read enough. They knew he didn't read enough. So just like Baptist people, you're always looking for the chink in the armor. You're always looking for the inconsistency. And, 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 and you know, I was thinking about something. I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. I was thinking about something. Those of you who are visitors, maybe you've come several Sundays, you've noticed that I, uh, all the men wear white shirts on the platform. Have you all noticed that? It's just something I like. It's just something I like. I personally like it. But then I thought this morning, you know, because I was kind of running out of white shirts. By the way, this is clean. <laughs> for those of you who are, I kind of thought maybe I should just allow for light blue shirts. Now, I'm not going to allow for dark colors, because if I allow for dark colors, then you'll have a, a light-colored tie. This is for a platform man. They'll do a light-colored tie. They'll look like the mafia. <laughs> okay. We're not having it. But I thought for just a moment, maybe I should do that. Then you know what the thought occurred to me? The thought occurred to me, if they ever saw a pastor sit up here, and I might do it, I might. It's just, it's, I might, I might. I just might. Boy, some of you are laughing. 
Ecru is okay. What's wrong with Ecru? Okay, nothing wrong with any of this. It's just something that I've liked in the past. Now, I know right now, some of you, your minds are spinning. Do you know right now, for some of you, I have your attention better than I've had for the whole sermon? I tricked you, okay? If you want the trick, uh, yeah, oh, oh, did he just suggest he might change the white shirt thing? <laughs> this is why the eyes of all them were fastened on Jesus. They were counting the verses. What? He sat down. He didn't meet the requirement. Jesus likely chose the scripture. The Bible is not specific about this, but he likely chose Isaiah. Or in the providence of God, this was the prescribed scripture reading for that day. It just so happens that that's a messianic passage. He hasn't read enough of it, and it's a messianic passage, and it describes something the Messiah would do, and all Jews recognized it as a messianic passage. But then he did something outrageous in verse 21. Now remember, we're saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're saying that the message is Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In verse number 21, he does something outrageous. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What? Yeah, he got their attention because he didn't read enough. (laughs) And then he'd read a passage that they knew to be messianic. He assumed that, they assumed that as the guest speaker, Jesus would talk one day about this coming Messiah, the hope of all Israel. And then while they're studying him, he declares this, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. What was he saying? He was saying, I am the Messiah. Now, look at the reaction in verse number 22. And all bear him witness, the audience, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So there was more than just that statement recorded in verse number 21. But, but notice this. They were struggling to put it together. They were listening to the message of Jesus, and it was different, and it was laden with the grace of God. But in verse number 22, they said, Is, this, is not this Joseph's son? Wait a minute. He grew up here. Well, he was our neighbor. Man, he was a kid down the block. Yeah, he used to go to work with his daddy, the carpenter. We know, of course, his foster daddy, but, but they weren't putting all those pieces together. Hey, isn't this just Jesus? Jesus' response is very interesting because in verse 23, he said unto them, knowing their thoughts, knowing their suspicion, knowing their questioning, he said unto them, ye will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. What sort of we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. In other words, Jesus, you, you did some things. We heard about some miracles. We heard rumors uh, in Capernaum. Just go ahead and do it here, and then that will suffice us. And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And then very interestingly, Jesus gives two illustrations. He talks about Elijah. Surpassed mind, he won the world, Elijah. Yeah, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 is the story. Jesus talks about how the prophet Elijah, the Hebrew prophet Elijah, healed a Phoenician, uh, pardon me, stayed with a Phoenician Gentile woman. Israel had rejected, by and large, the message of Elijah. 
And he points out, Jesus does, that, hey, Elijah was hanging out with this Gentile. He also gives an example of Elisha. Elisha healed Naaman, who was a Syrian, another Gentile, in 2 Kings chapter 5. And he says, you know, he says, uh, uh, you kind of rejected Elisha, but he went and healed Naaman the Syrian. And you know what happened when he gave those two illustrations? Remember, he gave them in answer to their suspicion of him, their considered rejection. When Jesus gave those two illustrations, he was saying, just like you rejected Elijah, that generation rejected Elijah, just like the next generation rejected Elisha, so will you reject me, but I will be embraced by the Gentiles. Nothing made the Jews more angry than to think that they would reject their Messiah and that he would make his appeal to the Gentiles. What did they decide to do? They took Jesus out of the synagogue. They brought him, the Bible says, to the brow of a hill. There is a hill traditionally believed to be that site in Nazareth. We're not particularly sure of that. I have a picture of myself preaching on that hill in my office. They brought him to the brow of this hill called Mount Precipice. They threatened to push him off the mountainside. And what does the Bible say very calmly at the end of that chapter? It says, well, Jesus, walking through the midst of them, passed by. By the way, that was a miracle. They got him there by force. And once they got him to the very edge, Jesus just sort of, I'd love to know what that looked like. But did you know what that proved? He is the Son of God. Pastor Monty, is that the message? It's a huge part of it. You see, Jesus determined to engage the battle with Satan in a way that surprises us. If you look at verse number 18, he said, this is how I'm going to do it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, here it is, Jesus said, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus said, I will defeat Satan by the preaching of truth. It's just that simple. Folks, look at me. Look at me. You want to know how to fix the problems in this world? Preach truth. This country was founded on the preaching of truth. We have strayed so far from that as to have adopted a secularism that knows no limit in its blindness, darkness, ignorance, and ridiculousness. And the answer is to preach truth. And if every church in this nation would quit bowing to philosophies of the woke crowd, that are wholly unacceptable and would simply say, here is the truth, Jesus is Lord. We could turn this nation around. The fault is not a political party. I think a lot of the fault lies in the church house. Where we're not saying that Jesus is the only way anymore. Some churches don't. Oh, Pastor Monty, there are many ways to God. No, there's only one. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. We're not making it clear anymore. Well, Pastor Monty, when you, you get that blunt with people, it's just kind of, um, kind of offensive. The gospel carries an offense. The problem is we're unwilling for whatever reason, maybe it's pressure, maybe it's society, I don't know, 
but were unwilling to proclaim the truth like we did. Jesus said he came to preach the gospel. Initially, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, that was the gospel of the kingdom, the idea that the kingdom could come, that Jesus was here. Later on, that gospel is the gospel of redemption, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, as he predicted to his disciples alone in Mark 8, verses 27 through 31. How do I overcome the devil? You want to know? Preaching the gospel. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of God who died for my sins. He is the Son of God who rose again the third day. The way to defeat the devil is to preach the gospel. He also says he came to heal the brokenhearted. How do you do that? Well, Pastor Monty, you send him to a psychologist. (laughs) He came to heal the brokenhearted the only way that can happen. We're not talking about heart surgery here. We're not talking about valve replacement He came to heal the brokenhearted. The only way that can happen is through truth. See, genuine healing of brokenheartedness in a broken society comes when I pour truth into the life of another person. It comes when I explain to them that there is a God in heaven who loves them. There is a Savior who died on the cross for them. There is a door wide open and that whosoever will may come. It comes when we explain that Jesus is the friend that stays closer than a brother and we take the word of God, which is the truth of God, and we proclaim it to those people whose hearts are broken. Jesus came to announce deliverance to the captives. That's part of our job. You can be free from the power of sin and the power of Satan. He does not have to have dominion over you. There is a message of hope. You do not need to be caught up in this continual whirlpool of Satan and sin and dominion and darkness. Jesus Christ can set the prisoner free. We're to announce the recovery of sight to the blind. Of course, in Jesus' ministry, he physically healed the blind. But I think this refers mostly to a proclamation of truth that allows people to see. Never has there been a world so blinded by crazy as this world. People accepting crazy things that come down the pike that are so contrary to the Bible. You say, Pastor Marty, how do you stand against it? Do you argue? (laughs) Argue all you want. You proclaim the truth of God. Does everyone see that Jesus decided to engage the battle this way in Luke chapter 4? He decided in accordance to the prophecy that the battle would be fought as a proclamation of truth would carry on. Jesus said we're to proclaim liberty to those who are oppressed. Not a military uprising to overthrow the current administration. I just disappointed some of you but the truth that Christ will one day come as King of kings and Lord of lords. We're to proclaim that truth about the kingdom, the acceptable year of the Lord. That has reference, I think, to the year of Jubilee, which has shades of meaning that kind of indicate the coming kingdom of Christ. And I think it's a prediction of Christ's coming kingdom. And do you know what the brightest hope of this world is? Pastor Monty, the brightest hope of this world is that the Democrats won't cheat in 2024. Like they did. Okay, let's just. It's not the brightest hope of this world. Can I tell you what the brightest hope of this world is? The brightest hope of this world is that one day Jesus Christ will reign as King of Kings. Do you know what? I, I've got that message to give you, Pastor Money. You believe a real, literal thousand years? Yep, sure do. Bible teaches it. Bible teaches it. Huh. That's hope. 
Ladies and gentlemen, Christ engaged Satan by the proclamation of truth. The battle then in our age and time is waged by advancing the truth. And in your personal life, you will only overcome Satan by embracing truth. The front line of this battle is proclamation. Pastor Monty, good. You're on the front line, you're preaching. But, but that's not the only place of proclamation. The place of proclamation is your neighborhood. The place of proclamation is your workplace. The place of proclamation is your school. The place where we must counter falsehood with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. And he died for your sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That truth, ladies and gentlemen, is the way to counteract everything wrong in this world. And that truth is the battle plan. Proclaim the truth, his person and his work. If you're here this morning, you'd say, Pastor Monty, I'm not sure that I'm a Christian, that I'm on the right side. I beg of you to step onto the right side. Now, by the way, all I can do is preach. I can proclaim. I can do my best to be persuasive. It is up to you whether or not you embrace the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Here it is. Jesus stands as the great dividing line in all of humanity. Those that are his are on the side of God and good and right. Those who reject are on the side of darkness and Satan. And it is up to every individual to make that choice. And the good news is, Jesus said, whosoever will may come. He wants everyone in this room to be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not sure, you'll have an opportunity to make that decision. If you're here as a Christian, you'd say, Pastor Money, I'm a Christian. But you know, sometimes I don't proclaim truth. Sometimes I don't even embrace truth like I should. And God's speaking to you. Why don't you re-up your enlistment on the side of Jesus? Father, please, Take the thoughts today and help us to see tremendous truth. You are the Son of God. You came incarnate in Bethlehem's manger. You self-identified as the Son of God. You were declared the Son of God by the Father in your baptism. You demonstrated you are the Son of God by overcoming Satan in the temptation. And then you declared yourself to be the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Father, this is the message we proclaim. Spirit of God, I pray you'll take these thoughts and help us to understand that this message represents a a side, everyone's on a side, but it also represents a plan of what we're to do to confound the works of the devil, proclaiming the truth of God. Speak to every heart, we pray. Let's stand, everyone, together, please. Standing together.